This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure today to have a chance to talk about a new book that's forthcoming from Nias Press. And I have with me here the author of that book, who is Hélène Maria Kud, and she's a senior researcher at the Danish Institute for International Studies here in Copenhagen. Uh, so, Hélène, welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you so much, Duncan. Okay, now we're quite excited about this new book you have coming out, which has quite a long subtitle as well. It's Informal Resolutions and State Evasion in a Time of Contested Transition. Uh, and I know you've been working on this project with a team of people for a while. Can you tell us something about how this book project came about? Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited uh, about this forthcoming book because it's actually the fruits of a really strong collaboration since 2015 um, mm -hmm. on a project called Everyday Justice and Security in the Myanmar Transition or popularly we call it the Everjust Project, um, where I from the Danish Institute for International Studies uh, and another colleague from there have been working uh, together with the two research institutions in Myanmar, the Anthropology Department at Yangon University and also the Enlightened Myanmar Research Foundation, which is like a research NGO. And we've also had a strong collaboration with Aarhus University um, mm. here in Denmark uh, on this project. Um, we've had a very close collaboration. We've worked together now for five years. So this book is like really uh, an important um, outcome of, of what we've been doing together. We've been, um, had a common ambition of trying to understand really from the ground, um, from local villages and neighborhoods, how do they understand justice? How do they pursue justice when they face crimes and social disputes? Really quite simple questions, but also leading us to ask bigger questions about state-society relations in Myanmar at this time of transition, how authority is constituted, how people understand different kinds of challenges to justice, not in necessarily in this larger picture, but also from a very everyday perspective. So hence also the, the, the main title of, of the book, Everyday Justice um, mm. in Myanmar. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I'm, I confess I still usually call the country Burma because that's what it was called when I first went there on, on my inaugural trip to Southeast Asia in 1985. And I guess for those people who don't know so much about Burma or Myanmar, um, one of the, the things that's difficult fully to grasp is that you've really got kind of two countries. There's lowland and upland Burma, and in the upland areas, not that many people go. Most of the tourists, the international trade and activity, and the familiar part is the lowland areas, what we used to call Rangoon, now Yangon, Mandalay, and so forth. But out uh, in the mountainous and, and hilly areas, close to the borders of a, a range of neighboring countries, you've got a lot of ethnic minorities, a lot of civil conflicts, violent conflicts going on. This is a really tough place to do fieldwork into tricky issues like justice. So how do you go about getting up into the, the highlands uh, of 
upland uh, Burma and uh, penetrating these kind of communities and getting this sort of information. So that's also been a long journey, a longer one than actually going out in the border areas. Um, so as I said, before we started in 2015, uh, 13 researchers from these different institutions. Uh, and it took us a long time to actually do research, uh, ethnographic research, which is the main sort of like part of this uh, work is that we wanted to do ethnographic in-depth research uh, in ethnic uh, minority uh, areas. So actually the first year we didn't do that because we couldn't get access. There was elections, there was a national peace agreement still being negotiated. So we actually started doing some, you know, trial out uh, field work in Yangon uh, areas. Uh, and then we could slowly move uh, to uh, southeast Myanmar, where there had been ceasefires for quite a while in Mon and Karen areas. Uh, and a lot of the fieldwork we did were also in lowland, both government and, and what we call mixed control. That is where you both have ethnic armed organizations uh, exercising some kind of influence uh, and the government. Uh, and then it was only much later on that, that uh, we did fieldwork uh, more, more in the areas that are fully uh, controlled by ethnic uh, organizations, what you would call sort of like the border areas that you uh, are referring to. And, and uh, only two, two and a half years into the project did we also start doing research in, in some of the self-administered zones like the Naga and Pau areas. Um, so it's a gradual process. You need a lot of patience. Uh, access is not something you do by filling out um, a simple form that you submit to a government office, but something that you get by uh, building trust, by talking to ethnic organizations, local leaders. Um, and I also have to say that we did ethnographic field work, but not the classical kind where you go and you plan to stay for 12 or six months at a time. We had to go on several revisits uh, some of the places we only went two, three days the first time, and then we could sort of do more days and come back again and again, which was also a very important part uh, of building trust, uh, both in us uh, as researchers, because um, as we also write in the book, this is the first kind of attempt uh, uh, to look into these questions of justice uh, in these kind of areas due to the long time closure of Myanmar for, for research, for international exposure, uh, but also for doing ethnography for Myanmar scholars um, themselves. So it's been a long uh, process that has required a lot of commitment. And I mean, the people we've worked with, um, I've worked with in Myanmar and the researchers from OWS has made an incredible uh, job and incredibly high level of commitment and also courage uh, to do this kind of, uh, kind of fieldwork. Um, and I think I want to also add that we are actually a very mixed team ourselves. Mm. There are a majority Bama. Um, yeah. Project, but we also have Nagamon, Karen, right. um, Shan, and which was also very necessary uh, to build up our teams uh, to mm -hmm. be able to work in these areas. And it's part of the trust building, but also the kind of exchanges we could have about findings that we uh, that that we got uh, doing the doing the ethnographic fieldwork. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like a, a very ambitious and, and fascinating sort of project. I mean, I see one of the things that comes through uh, in the introduction in your own chapter, some of the other chapters, is this, this idea that people can shop around for different outfits that are going to dispense justice 
to them. So if you're not really very comfortable with one version of justice, you can kind of go down the road and talk to some other characters who might be able to help you to resolve your dispute. This seems obviously from sitting here in Denmark, like a rather a curious idea. Can you explain about how this sort of forum shopping, as you call it, would really work on the ground? Yeah, so forum shopping is, is sort of a concept we bought from uh, some legal anthropologists mm. um, who have been using it to try to understand, you know, what do people do when they don't seek uh, help from, from the official institutions like state courts and they don't report their cases of crimes to the police. Uh, but maybe also they're not able to find resolutions in their local arena with a local village uh, leader or ward leader. Uh, people seek other alternatives and, and we use this concept to try to trace down or map or conceptualize the situations where people could not find solutions with mm. their local village and ward leader, which as we might come a bit back to is actually the preferred option for mm. people is to seek these kind of local uh, informal resolutions. Um, so we use that concept uh, to try to understand uh, the situations where people would go to actors who were not necessarily defined as official justice providers, but mm -hmm. who played sort of like a facilitatory role or who acted as, as mediators. Um, and, and we use also the concept of legal pluralism sort of to not only talk about the plurality of norms, but also of actors. So with, you know, uh, of course there's big differences between the areas, but if we look broadly at it, we have, both ethnic armed organizations who have their mm -hmm. own justice uh, system. Right. Uh, we have people going also to individual armed actors, both on the uh, Myanmar military side and on the ethnic armed group side. We have quite a large number of religious actors, ranging from Buddhist monks uh, to Christian pastors right. to astrologers and spirit mediums. Yep. And people somehow try to seek uh, help from to gain justice. And that's been quite important for us to try to understand and map out that field of, of alternative uh, actors um, in this context. Right, because I guess part of the context of this that, that our listeners may not fully grasp is that in many of these areas of upland Burma, the Burmese central state to the government doesn't exactly have complete control. In some places, it doesn't really have control at all. So you've got competing power centers with their own sources of legitimacy uh, and you've even had local regions where the groups controlling those regions have been able to establish their own armies and uh, demand taxation from people and provide services to people in quasi-state-like ways. Um, that must make it incredibly confusing to understand you know, where you go when you want something like the resolution of a, of a dispute for people. But it's also incredibly confusing to research. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, what is quite interesting finding in, in our research is, is uh, the areas that are most confusing, or I would say uh, a better word is where justice is most um, unpredictable or where the outcomes of seeking justice are most unpredictable are actually in the mixed control areas. Mm -hmm. So... You have areas, as you rightly say, that are more or less fully controlled by ethnic armed organizations like the Karen National mm -hmm. Union or the New One State Party, which we have followed. They have their own justice system. In the areas they fully controlled, uh, the pathway to how you deal with cases from village level 
up is actually quite certain. People know mm -hmm. they can use that system. There's a hierarchy, sort of a procedure. But in the mixed controlled areas where you today, with the ceasefires, with the transition, both have, you know, access to the formal Myanmar state system, to the ethnic group system. That is where people really get confused because uh, they don't really want to go to the state system. They can go to the ethnic armed group system, but it's actually not really legal to do so because officially they're not within their areas. Um, so you can actually see in those mixed areas this sort of expansion of a plurality of alternative uh, actors to those justice systems. So I said, like I said before, individual armed actors, religious actors. Mm -hmm. So there's a space there at the same time that people, if they can avoid it at all, they would prefer to use their local village uh, award leader because even just going outside the village or neighborhood is a source of, of insecurity uh, because authority itself is, is, is not stable. You don't have one mm -hmm. particular state, one particular authority that is uh, stable or that has full uh, control. So that's some of the, one of the important findings uh, that is coming out of, of, of our work as well and which you can read about in the book. Right. But what seems to come through is, you know, perhaps counterintuitively to those who are used to different kinds of uh, social and political systems, people seem to prefer the informal to the formal. They run away from the formal and gravitate towards the informal. Why is that? That's right, uh, Duncan. Um, actually, our research, we also did some household surveys, and mm. between 70 and 90% of, of the household respondents confirming our qualitative findings just preferred to have very local-level informal resolutions in all types of cases. If you then, mm. including murder cases and rape cases, if you then ask about more sort of like smaller thefts, the percentage was even higher. And this is confirmed by, by some of the other, uh, you know, national surveys that has been done also after we've done our qualitative research. So we looked into this and there's not one answer. There's a whole range of different factors uh, uh, that play in. And when we talk about informal resolutions, we're also talking about different ways of understanding justice or perceptions mm -hmm. of justice. So for a lot of the people who we did field work amongst, so when we had these conversations, when we looked at the concrete cases and traced them, we found that there was a clear preference for reconciliation, mm -hmm. uh, for social harmony, uh, whereas punitive justice was seen as conflict es escalation, uh, as a kind of disturbing social harmony, uh, which could cause shame and loss of dignity. So people prefer to do what in Burmese, Burmese is called nalimu, mm -hmm. which, is, which actually means understanding, directly translated, but which, when you look at it in practice, is about sitting down with a local mediator, coming to a mutual understanding, uh, where you, know, you agree on, 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 on resolving the conflict, or where if it's a theft or, or uh, an injury, where you come to some kind of uh, agreement on, on compensation. So one of the reasons is people's justice perceptions and a desire for keeping good social relations amongst uh, people. Uh, we also found uh, other reasons for the preference for informal uh, and local. And I think we've touched about it a bit mm. already. And that is that in many situations, there are in people's minds, no reliable sort of trustworthy Yep. official outside uh, authority that you can 
turn to, and that in itself also reinforces the preference for very localized uh, solutions or reinforces those justice perceptions and preferences uh, uh, for these forms of, of, of informal uh, justice. And that presumably is because people have a deep mistrust of the Burmese state based on years of civil wars, of oppressive behavior by the security forces and so on. But of course, in, in some other cases, we can find in, in different parts of Southeast Asia or elsewhere in the world, people may be very distrustful of the security forces, but still put some faith in the courts. And in the Burmese case, it seems like the whole state apparatus is, is sort of tarnished with the same idea. Of, this is something that we want to use the word evade. Um, uh, you'd also use the word avoid, I guess. Um, you want to get away from state agencies as far as possible. I know that Jim Scott is, uh, is thanked in your acknowledgements, and we do start to... Uh, are, you, are you trying to insinuate these people are sort of anarchists in their upland areas that would rather evade all kinds of control by um, lowland capital cities and so forth? Or is that, would that be pushing the argument too far? I... Uh... I'll come back to that question first, but I wanted to say that we deliberately use the word evade instead of mm, avoid because we, mm. we find that it's in evasion lies a more deliberate sort of uh, avoidance, whereas avoidance is more like, you know, moving around, but people are quite deliberately uh, in various ways. And so are village leaders doing their best to sort of not get in, in contact, not reporting cases uh, to the police. And yes, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I got to admit, I went back and forth with that. I don't fully understand <laughs> the distinction that you're making between evasion and avoidance, because to me, avoidance is more—you know—that's really uh, keeping out of the states way more explicitly than evasion. But um, okay, but that's a good yeah. point. We can yeah. discuss that. But, that's, but, but anyway, it's one of the interest, interesting puzzles in the book. Yeah. Yeah, but I think to your question to James Scott, I mean, first of all, it's a different historical period. Of course, it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, second of all, uh, most of our field sites are not these sort of like isolated hilltop mm -hmm. societies. And, and in any case, I think there are, if, uh, I mean, I don't think there are many of those societies left because right. we're in a different historical period. Yes. Uh, people are, you know, exposed. Uh, they move around. Uh, there's mm -hmm. cross-border. Uh, they have family members in, in the lowlands. It's a different uh, kind of context. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when we talk about uh, evasion, it's, it's, there is, of course, uh, elements of there being a political strategy when we look at how the mm -hmm. ethnic armed organizations, but also the non-armed ethnic organizations, uh, there's a chapter on the Naka, that, of course, there are ethnic leaders who are more politically and deliberately mm -hmm. uh, trying to get uh, people to use uh, their ethnic justice systems. And that, of course, there is... A a, a politics in that. And we might come back to these questions about uh, the link between justice uh, and identity politics. Uh, mm -hmm. So there, of course, you have politics. When it, but yeah. when it comes to, to ordinary people, uh, it is much more based on uh, historical experiences with the state, as you mentioned, or other people's historical experiences, mm -hmm. the narrative of the state uh, that is linked to the history of oppression, exclusion, especially of ethnic minorities. But it's also very much at a very low practical level. Uh, it's costly to use the state uh, courts and police. It's associated with bribery or high fees. Sometimes people have a difficulty mm. distinguishing what is formal fees and bribery. Mm. Um, We've also uh, discussed very much a concept that Mia Tatitza, who is part of the research project as well, calls formality phobia. 
that amongst a lot of people in Myanmar, there is also a fear uh, from formality. And we see that in other similar contexts as well, entering a courtroom, it's formalistic language. So there's also elements of that, that of course gets combined or hooked up with the, you know, deep historical narrative uh, about the state, about the military state, which still very much persists in people's understandings of what the state is, even yes. though they can see that there's a changing government and, and right. certain things have, right. have, have, uh, have, have changed. Uh, and then I think a very Im- important part, uh, Duncan, also of our book is also to say that uh, we really do want to also put across uh, the importance of looking at different justice perceptions. So, mm-hmm. you know, when people prefer local informal resolutions, um, it's not only about avoiding the state, there's mm-hmm. all different things at play. So even if we had a perfect state punitive system, right. Right. Uh, there would likely still be a preference for these forms of informal uh, justice, which has to do with the cultural perception, socioeconomic status, uh, the way that people live, uh, and so on. Yes, I mean, I must say that formality phobia is very familiar to me. I hadn't used that exact phrase, but from my no. work in, in Badani in southern Thailand, where there's an ongoing insurgency, you say that about most Malay Muslims there. Let's just keep away from the authorities, not set forth in any government buildings, because as soon as we go in there, something's going to go wrong. We're going to have a misunderstanding. If we're not careful, we're going to be arrested or something bad will happen to us. So the best thing is just don't go, don't go there at all if you can possibly avoid it. Uh, and I guess that's a very, very interesting phenomenon. And I know you also place a lot of emphasis on cultural norms and religious beliefs and things. And I guess that's not quite a mainstream way of understanding justice. Uh, how do you sort of square the, the circle there in terms of trying to, to link questions about culture and, and religion and so forth with ideas about the dispensation of justice? Yes. So, uh this has come to fill up quite a bit uh, uh, of our research and also in the book because we were trying to understand, you know, why do people prefer informal local resolutions? Um, we traced a lot of cases from its beginning to its end, asking people, why did you act like this in that situation? Why didn't you report to the police? Or why didn't you seek punishment, you know, of the perpetrator? And, and you know, trying to really understand why in a theft case, uh, if people not report to the police or why were they not interested in, in seeing the perpetrator convicted uh, uh, for the rape case, uh, we really had to also go beyond the state evasion understanding uh, um, uh, of these issues and, and, and dig deeper into people's understandings of victimhood, uh, of uh, uh, fair uh, procedures and so on and so forth in relation to justice. So in terms of cultural terms, uh, we looked at, uh, of course, we looked at the different contextuals because it's not homogenous and people have different views and sometimes they're also internally split on, on, on the norms and beliefs. But just to draw out sort of the general things in, in Myanmar, what uh, uh, we found was a thing that went through across was um, uh, this preference for uh, de-escalating conflict. So there's a saying in Myanmar uh, called make the big cases uh, smaller and the smaller cases uh, disappear, Um, which is very much associated with if you bring a case forward, if you report it to a justice provider, it's shameful, um, it's bad for your your dignity, it's bad for your standing in society. Mm -hmm. So there are cultural norms around not sticking your nose out, 
but keeping things to yourself. Um, and if you do seek some kind of resolution to a problem, you do it in a very low-key fashion. Uh, you do it with the intention of reconciling quickly uh, with the other parties. So these kind of uh, uh, cultural perceptions that are embedded in social harmony, as I mentioned earlier. But what we found really, really interesting, and also for me, who have uh, uh, done research previously in, in, in Southern Africa, particularly in Mozambique, uh, was also the role of Buddhism. So most of the places we did uh, field research, with a few exceptions, were uh, Buddhist, but also mixed Buddhist animist. So the combination of, of, of uh, Buddhist uh, and animist uh, beliefs uh, were very strong in, in, in sort of the way that people would navigate in the justice field. And that was very much associated in the Buddhist way with ideas about karma and merit-making and past life deeds. So we would have people multiple times saying, well, when we ask you, why didn't you report that theft or that rape case? And people would say, no, you know, I was robbed because I robbed someone in my past life. Mm -hmm. So this is my way of making up for it so that I can right. improve my karmatic uh, situation. Um, and of course, we would look, you know, we would think, oh, this is just sort of like a, an excuse or a substitute because people don't want to report the cases to, to the police. And it's a way of explaining the lack of secular justice. Um, and of course, you can also interpret it in that way. But we right. also found that even the way that people spoke about victimhood, uh, these religious beliefs did um, have uh, uh, a quite uh, significant uh, impact. And definitely also speaks against this kind of uh, thrive for secular justice. Because if someone is punished for the crime, then that means you can't make up for your past life deeds. Um, it's very much a belief that uh, we met. And there's a chapter in the book that looks at this um, theft of gold uh, of a lady that goes really into detail uh, with this uh, and also looks at how it's mixed with, with animist spiritual beliefs um, as well. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's, there's an awful lot going on in this book. There are a lot of chapters, lots of different parts of the country that you've worked on, different people in your research team, and we can't get through and, and cover everything in a conversation like this. I hope all we can do really is to to, to convey something of the flavor. Um, we hope that lots of people after this are going to go and, and look at the book, Everyday Justice in Myanmar, published by Nias Press. But, you know, to give them inspiration to do that, what's the, what's the biggest takeaway from the book? What's the, what's the most important thing that you'd like people to know about this book? Perhaps to inspire them to go and buy it or check it out of the library? I'm, first of all, I'm hoping that we will have different kinds of audiences. Yes. Um, so, of course, on the Myanmar side, I'm really hoping, and this is also what we've been trying to do with workshops and sharing of our insights mm -hmm. with people in Myanmar, from the state side, ethnic organizations, is that we really can give a boost uh, um, to the debate within the justice sector uh, in Myanmar uh, about the importance of understanding all these different kinds of local uh, practices and perceptions of justice. Um, and to understand the everyday as well, because what is really important in Myanmar, of course, is to understand the bigger justice challenges. There's a lot of stuff going on in Myanmar at the moment, which are extremely important, and it's on the agenda. It's got the attention uh, of, uh, of international actors as well. But these kinds of everyday challenges and experiences, uh, not forgetting those, uh, and they also give insights to how it's 
these problematics and challenges are anchored uh, in, in everyday life. I mean, there's also a couple of the chapters in the book that look particularly at the situation of Muslims at the moment. Uh, and we all know that at a wider level, uh, there's a high level of discrimination. Our book then also, just to give an example, is also looking at the challenges in the everyday context, but also at, at one context where actually the Muslims have a very good relationship with their Buddhist neighbors uh, and the ways in which they are able to live peacefully together, uh, resolve disputes together. So maybe also both to show the challenges, but also to some of the solutions to some of the, the wider or bigger justice challenges um, in Myanmar. Um, and then I think with the, another, uh, the academic audience, our book is not very theoretically uh, sort of sophisticated mm -hmm. because that was also not the point. Uh, but I'm hoping that uh, amongst legal anthropologists and people interested in informal justice, um, in local security issues, will also be a big readership. Uh, because actually this is the first book on Myanmar that are looking at these questions. And I think it's bringing uh, a lot of similar stuff, a lot of comparative stuff, but mm -hmm. also new stuff on a country where you have such a massive plurality uh, of ethnic groups and institutions. You have... Um, armed groups who've had their own justice system since the 1970s. Yep. So there's, there is um, both empirical stuff and analytical reflection that I'm hoping will also contribute to that wider uh, academic debate, particularly about legal pluralism and plural authorities, uh, non-state armed groups. Yes. Well, clearly, you know, this is a, a fascinating project and you've done a great book out of it. We're really looking forward to seeing and being able to... to um, put out there and, and explore and show to people. So thank you so much for joining us today um, on the Nordic Asia podcast. This has been a conversation with Hélène Maria Kuh and, uh, of DIES, uh, Danish Institute of International Studies. I'm Duncan McCargo from the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. Thanks for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. Thanks, Hélène. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.